Welcome to the last Monday of January this year. Hopefully you have been paid and are slowly recovering from overspending in December. This is episode 30 of African Couch Potato, the mashup. I am still your host, Juno Shedile, and today I will be jumping into another story. This time it's about heartbreak and what movies to watch when you're feeling a little fragile. Growing up, I've always had an active imagination. I used to fall in love with people that I'd never spoken to, and this was in grade two. I also bear my sister, who used to listen to Whitney Houston and a whole lot of Metro FM, and those are the kind of songs that get you to feel stuff. There would be times where I would be so mad at a classmate of mine, her name was Simone, because she spent too much time with a guy called Barry. And nobody liked Barry. We used to bully Barry, not me, because I am born again. But James and Bradley would pile in on Barry. So I didn't understand why Simone would spend so much time with this guy and not me. That time, I had not had a single conversation with Simone. But in my mind, we were dating. We were full-time. We were long-term. We were permanent. Anyways, as I got older, I got a little cooler. I used to write stuff. I used to write love poems for people to give to their girlfriends. I wrote some prayers for the school, a couple of raps. I was in a singing group and I couldn't even sing. That's how cool I was. But you know what ultimately made me a rock star? The marimba group. There was nothing cooler at my school than the marimba group. And we were the youngest group in the history of the school. The original rock stars were myself, Mlungisi Shongwe, who later went to the National School of Arts and played for some iconic musicians as a drummer, Peto Mapena, who now goes as Jay Smalls and is a three-time summer-nominated engineer and R&B artist, Joshua Mandlazi, who has done a lot of amazing things in the music scene as a composer and engineer, and the other guys you really just needed to fill the gaps. Because in a group, you need six to seven guys, and not all of us could be talented, but we couldn't do it alone. Anyways, after a couple of years, I think about 10 years, I'm now 17 years old. We've built a reputation around Whitbank as the Marimba group, you know, the cool guys. We were invited to events, even irrelevant events, like if there was a show house that people were showing at Bangenfeld, we would play, usher them in with music. They'd tell us to keep quiet while they talk all the important stuff. We'd come back, play again. That was our gig. Sometimes you got paid, a lot of the times we did it. Anyways, it's around 2007 and our music teacher, Mafrofa Nikek, decides that we need to go big. We need to enter the National Marimba Competition. This is an annual event. It takes place in Boxburg at St. Dominic Catholic School for Girls. It's still running today and they've changed the name to the International Marimba Festival. At the time, I had recently gone through a breakup. So... I knew we were going to win the competition because that's what guys do after a breakup. You either go to gym and you fetch your best body or you become a millionaire. The great Gatsby taught us this pain is useless without progress. So if you see me buy another car or moving into a new place, you must know. Bang Anyways, we get to Boxburg with the boys and our music teacher and we watch some of the other groups perform before we get to play our first set. The thing about live music is that the response is instant. So you can see from the crowd if you're doing something right or wrong. When we were done, there was clapping and cheering, obviously. And I knew we had done something right. A few minutes later, though, there was even more cheering and more clapping. And this was for a girls group, the St. Dominic Girls. They had home ground advantage. Anyways, they played, they played, they played. Too much applause. And after that, 
there was a break or a recess, which is a part of the competition where you go out for lunch for about two hours and then you come back and then the competition continues. So it takes place over two days. There's the Saturday and the Sunday. One of our bandmates had infiltrated the girls group and he was talking to one of the girls. So obviously as a 17 year old guy who was trying to deal with a heartbreak, I thought, why don't I also go talk to one of the girls? So that's what I did. There was a very shy girl. She had braids. I've always loved braids to this day. I'm a big braid fan. And because she was so quiet, I thought it would make things easier for me because I also, I don't know how to shell her. Like, I don't know how to convince somebody to love me. You must just feel it when you're around me that I love you and you must love me back. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to give you any words of affirmation. It's just learn me enough to love me back. So I asked this girl if she wanted to take a walk and she said, yes. Obviously I'd watched a lot of rom-coms and I know that when you take a walk with a girl, you stick out your elbow so that she can put her arm inside and then you guys walk side by side. We walked, there was a bit of silence and I was just trying to figure out what to say to this girl. And I was hoping very strongly that she can just feel my soul. Eventually there was a bench. We sat down on this bench. I can't remember what the conversation was, but all I was thinking of at the time is if I could go in for a kiss at this moment, she would know that I love her and she loved me back and we'll start a family and be great. It was stressful because the first kiss is always the worst. You don't know how to initiate it. You don't know where your hand should be. Is it like um, around her shoulder or is that too close? Is it on her knee? Is that too rapey? So I had an internal conversation with the four voices in my head trying to figure out when is the time to go in for a kiss. So I thought naturally after a hug, if I ask this girl to hug her, she's going to feel my soul. Then our hearts are going to beat in tandem and we're going to be one. And as she pulls out, I go in for the kiss. She's mine. Then it was time to go back for the second part of the performances. And I didn't get a kiss. I didn't get a hug. I just had to live with the fact that she knows that I love her. After the second set of performances, I summoned up enough courage to go ask for her number. There wasn't WhatsApp at the time. It was like SMS. But we had like lots and lots of SMSs. Vodacom for you. You could SMS for the whole day. We went back to our hotel, our motel. It's Formula. It used to be called Formula One. It's now called Sun Sun One where you have bunk bed and then you have a single bed and then they put three guys in one room and other three guys in the other room because they had no sense of privacy, but it was fine. We weren't doing anything at the time. And I just kept texting this girl. Her name was Uleb. So I was texting, Hi, how are you? She was asking me, have you guys eaten? Yeah, how are you? Oh, we just got home. Texted, 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 texted. I knew I was living on borrowed time because the festival is two days, Saturday and Sunday. And if nothing happened on Sunday, it wasn't actually an option. So my mind couldn't go that far. We had Saturday and I'd exhausted Saturday and I had to sleep, wake up and do best. So I slept, I woke up, we started playing. Again, the crowds were cheering, they were clapping and I was in my groove. I was in my element. I was improvising. I was doing things to that marimba that had never been done before and the crowd saw it. And I hoped that she could see it as well. After that, it was their turn to play. So they played uh, and they kept like banging, etc. They weren't bad. They weren't great, but they weren't bad. Um, but I got the sense that they were our closest competition. Then recess came. We took a walk again, stuck on my elbow. She put her arm in there, didn't say anything. She was supposed to feel my soul. And then we kiss and we get married forever. We sat down on the bench. And this time 
she hugged me and it was one of those hugs where somebody rubs your back, not the Christian way where it's like dismissive and you're my Christian brother, but like when somebody is trying to like feel your heart through your chest. It was very warm and I was like, ooh, then as we pulled out from the hug, I tilted my head. I saw her eyes, see my eyes, see her eyes. I saw my kids in her eyes. I went in for that kiss and it was the most beautiful kiss of my 17-year-old life. After that, we walked back. I still hadn't asked her to be my girlfriend because I knew we were living on borrowed time. I was probably never going to see her again. But she knew what I knew and it was that we were meant to be. So we walked back and obviously now when we're walking back, everybody's looking at us. The boys are nodding because we're holding hands. They're like, ah, yeah, man, get yours. We see you, boy, you know. And it was their turn to play. Then it was our turn to play in the finale. So to wrap up basically our performances. And we won, obviously. And having won, I went to my girl because obviously I decided that she's Beyonce. I'm Jay-Z. She is of the school. I am of another world. And together, she's not going to be jealous, right? Because she's mine. So my win is her win. Her win is my win. We won that day. I got the goal. Obviously, there was the issue of, um, are we going to keep talking? Are you going to call me? I said, definitely, baby girl. I will call you. At the time, coming from Whitbank to Boxburg felt far. If I had known, but I didn't at the time. So I said, yes, I'm going to call her. And then we kissed again, this time in front of everyone, because you can't deny our love and that it will last forever. And it got so long that the Mefron Fanikak, my music teacher, started driving the quantum off slowly. And after I kissed her, she said goodbye. I think I gave her my beanie, which had my name on it so that I could always be engraved in her heart. And I never saw her ever again. So Lebu Hang, wherever you are, please find me on Instagram. That was the shortest, most important relationship of my life. And it happened exactly half a lifetime ago when I was 17. I'm now 34. I can't even find this girl on Instagram or on Facebook. Every time I go through a breakup, I search for her name just in case. And I don't find her. What has this taught me? It has taught me that in life, bad things happen. And the only thing that will make you feel good about a bad situation is watching something that's sad. So I'm the opposite. I don't need pick-me-ups. If I'm sad, I need something that's depressing. If I'm happy, I need something that will like catapult me into a new sphere of happiness. Which brings me to my personal 10 heartbreaking movies of all time. And these have kept me sane through every breakup and through every opportunity where I have felt robbed of the love of my life. Number one is The Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith. So this one is not a romantic kind of movie, but it's about a dad, Chris Gardner, who sells these machines and he's not making any money. He gets evicted. His wife leaves him and he's got a little boy. Will Smith's real son plays his son in this movie. So he's got this little boy that he now has to take care of so he's rushing everywhere with this boy trying to get interviews trying to build um, a better life he enrolls in a competitive internship to become a stockbroker but what's sad about this movie or the moment that gets to me is once you become a parent you realize just how much this guy was trying to shield the child from seeing how bad his life is and it gets to a point where they've got no place to sleep they haven't eaten they go into a public bathroom 
Um, they are going to sleep there for the evening. And then Will Smith puts out his foot to block the door from people coming in, right? So the kid falls asleep inside his like suit jacket. Um, and then somebody tries to use the bathroom and Will Smith just like wedges it with his foot. And then he starts crying because the only thing between him and homelessness is this toilet cubicle that somebody is trying to come and pee in and mess up his child's evening. Number two is the notebook. The premise is good. This one is very lovey-dovey, but what I like not so much is the lovey-doveyness, but the approach and how it is treated. So you have Noah. Noah meets this girl, Ellie. They meet at a carnival where there's like um, merry-go-rounds and all of those things, Ferris wheels. And he convinces, see, as a man, you must convince a woman to love you. He convinces this girl to love him. And the girl is like, ah, I'm not so sure. Then he's like, fine, I'll kill myself. And the girl is like, no, 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 don't kill yourself. Eventually, they start a blissful relationship. And then as time goes by, Ellie loses her memory. And then this guy keeps coming to the home where she is in and reads a story to her. And is like, this is how Noah met Ali, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, he changes the names, right? And then this woman starts now falling in love with this book and is like, who are these people? Are they real people? And at the end, you guys know this movie. It's not even like a, a spoiler alert. At the end, Ali realizes that the book that's being read to her is the story of her life and that she is actually next to the person that she has loved for all of her life. The problem is that it's not the first time she has this revelation and the guy just has to live within that time frame, which is like a couple of hours or days of her remembering him. And then she forgets and he has to start reading the book over again. Number three is P.S. I Love You, which came out in 2007. It's about a woman who loses her husband. The husband is 35 at the time that he dies. The husband is played by Gerard Butler. What I like about this is Gerard Butler is coming from 300 as a Spartan who is just like fearless and he goes against the Persians and he wins absolutely everything. And within 10 minutes of this movie, he dies. And it's not even his fault. So what he does is that before he died, he wrote a bunch of letters. He gets these letters delivered to the wife after his burial. And then the wife has to read each letter and do what is instructed in that letter. And that's how she gets to live her life without him. Number four is Moulin Rouge, where a writer, I like writers because I am a writer. A writer falls in love with a burlesque dancer. And what happens is the burlesque dancer is obviously with a man. And this man is a rich man. So she is the property of this rich man and nobody else can have her. This writer is full of dreams. He believes in love. And he taught us that wonderful phrase that the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and to be loved in return. So lots of lasting impressions from that movie. It is a musical and the way that it was scored or that the song selection, the choice of music was brilliant. So it carries you through every emotion. I'm counting the top 10 heartbreaking movies that I have personally experienced. Number five is The Great Gatsby because he's like me, most this guy. He falls in love with a girl and then he has to leave. And then the girl gets married and then he comes back, finds out that the girl is married and decides that because my heart has been broken, I have to go get ultra rich. So he goes, he gets ultra rich and then he buys a house that is opposite her house, but on the other side of the bay. And all he does in this movie is just try to prove that he is worth Daisy's time. And Daisy comes to visit him. They try to rekindle their relationship, but they fail to. And at the end, 
James Getz, who was Gatsby, gets shot and dies in the pool. We don't know who shot him, but just that wanting to prove to somebody so much that you are so much more than what they left you for is a recurring theme, I feel, in these movies. And that's why it's at number five. Number six is Catch a Fire, a very, very, very different kind of, it's not even a romantic story. It's about the struggle, which is apartheid in South Africa. There's a guy called Patrick Chamuso who works in Sekunda. He's falsely accused of terrorism. Then they take his wife in for questioning. They torture the wife. And he who was anti-political now becomes a wing of the MK, which is ANC's veteran or military wing. He goes, he trains in Angola, comes back to wreak havoc and then gets arrested. He gets released. And then once he's released at an old age, he sees the policeman who tortured him and his wife enjoying a dope there by the dam. They're having a bit of a bry, and he has the opportunity to kill that man and he chooses not to. So not all of the things that make me sad are about love. Some of them is just about the decisions. Like, what are you willing to do for your children? What are you willing to do for your sanity? What are you willing to do for your peace of mind? Number seven is one of the saddest movies of all time. It's called The Truman Show. So James Carey is a comic and he's always known to play very funny roles. So he was in The Mask. What happens in this one, it's a bit of a, a dark humor approach. There's this guy who is born and he doesn't know that he's born into a live televised series. So as soon as he's born, they take him from the hospital, they film his life. So he grows up in studio, not being aware that he's actually in studio and that everything that's around him has been created. It's a studio set. And then eventually he starts realizing strange things are happening. People who are supposed to be dead start popping up. People who greet him keep saying the same things over and over again. And then he figures it out that all of this is just basically one big set that he has to escape because there has to be life out there. He tries to run away. Um, and the reason that he didn't run away earlier on is because the ocean had always been positioned to him as something that he's scared of. His father died while swimming in the sea, so he mustn't ever swim by the sea. Eventually, he summons up the courage to take a boat to go see where the sea ends because he's trying to run away from this fake town. And then he hits a wall. And then upon hitting that wall, he realizes that all of these things are props. Then they reveal a staircase and then there's the voice of God or his creator. And I also liked the notion of the creator part because it's the creator in studio, the person who created the Truman Show, but they're positioning him as God, which is our creator. So it's this one being who gets to observe your life from a place of comfort as you make mistakes and they're not allowed to chime in. You just basically have to figure it out. So once he realizes all of that, that's the heart-wrenching moment where you're just like, sure, your whole life has been a lie and under the control of one being. Number eight is Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor is two best friends. They grow up together, they get drafted into the war. They become pilots of fighter jets. And the one guy goes on a mission, Ben Affleck. And then while he's on a mission, the crew goes missing. So everybody believes him to be dead. So before he went on a mission, he found a girl. He fell in love with the girl. He went on a mission. They thought they were dead. So they'd written him off. And then the girl and his best friend comfort each other a bit too much and then they start dating. And now that they're dating and they're happy in love, the guy comes back and his people have become each other's people. So now again, it's that question of 
one, who are you angry at? Is it your wife for not having stayed and waited for you? Is it your best friend for having taken advantage of your wife at her moment of weakness? Or do you hate both of them? And the friend and wife believe that they are together on the right terms and they really love each other. So must the girl go back to this guy that she thought was dead and forget her new relationship where she's happy in? So just that confusion is enough to make anyone cry. Number nine is, remember the Titans, no love in this one. It's just like a bunch of misfits. Um, it's a story of racism. It's a story of trials, of tribulations. Denzel leads this team of like unknown footballers, high school footballers to glory. And it's all the things that he has to overcome in order to be recognized as a respectable coach of color. And then number 10 is sad from the get-go. It's a movie called Precious. It's about a dark-skinned heavy girl who has to survive verbal and emotional abuse from her mother, has to survive physical abuse from her mother. She is told that she'll amount to nothing. No man will want her. By the time she's 16, she's on her second pregnancy. She lost the first baby. She carries to term with the second baby. She tries to go to school. She doesn't fit in at that school. And it's just that story of survival, finding your worth, trying to have some morsel of love in a world that has deemed you to be too ugly, too fat, too tall, too not right for society's standards. So that's my 10 heartbreaking movies of all time that I have watched personally to get over some very tough times in my life. I'm strong now, so strong that next week we will be chatting to Chantal, who's going to be telling us about Christian speed dating and she'll also let us know what her favorite film genres are and you can find all of this on our social media at African Couch Potato for now it's goodbye and keep binging <laughs>